Welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. To learn more about the podcast and access even more Bible study resources, visit vbvpodcast.com. You can also support the work of Verse by Verse and gain access to special gifts and resources by becoming a Patreon subscriber. If you have questions, contact me at vbvpodcast at gmail.com. Acts 19, verses 8 through 10. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. In our last study, we saw the formal beginning of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and with that, the event we might call his third missionary journey. Upon arriving back in the city, he found the Christians who had been left there by Priscilla and Aquila, who themselves had evidently gone on to another place. Among this congregation, He found about 12 families, the text says 12 men, but many scholars believe it should be understood as representative of 12 households, which had seemingly been brought into the church around the same time as Apollos, but they had not come to realize the great truths of the kingdom which Apollos himself had learned from Priscilla and Aquila's teaching. These people eventually understood that they needed to be rebaptized in accordance with the teachings of Jesus and to give their allegiance to him as the reigning king. Once that happened, the Bible says that Paul laid hands on them and the Spirit caused them to prophesy and speak in tongues. Thus, the Jews in Ephesus were given the great sign of the kingdom, which had previously been shown in Jerusalem and at the household of Cornelius, that Christ had come, that Christ was reigning, and that covenant loyalty to God was now through Christ, not Moses, and those who had ears to hear and eyes to see were firmly established in the faith. Soon, Luke will describe some signs that were given to the Gentile community there to benefit them similarly, But first, he continues to explore Paul's ministry among the Jews. As we have become accustomed to see, verse 8 says that once Paul settled things among the disciples, he went into the synagogue. The pattern so far has been that Paul lasted two or three Sabbaths in the synagogue before he was no longer welcome. In this case, we have a significant divergence. Luke says that Paul spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. We recall that Paul had been here and preached before, and they were so impressed with him then that they begged him to stay and continue teaching. It was not expedient for him at that time, but he had promised to return, and now, when he does, he finds the warm welcome that he might have hoped for. Yet we should note that several significant things had transpired in the previous months while Paul was gone. First, a group of Christians had formed. I've already shared my suggestion that the evidence supports that these Christians, while still gathering with the synagogue for its services and identifying with it in some way, also 
already possessed a distinct identity and likely were meeting on the Lord's Day for their own worship according to the established Christian custom. It is possible that these Christians had limited their evangelistic efforts to home studies, like we saw with Apollos in chapter 18. And if that is the case, then maybe there had been no occasion for the synagogue to be stirred up by the Christian presence among them so far. Before Apollos had been converted, his teaching would not have been overly offensive to the Jews. In fact, it would have been fairly in keeping with the message of the circumcision party, namely that Jesus was the Messiah, but that to follow him and experience the work he was doing for Israel, it was necessary for one to first come into the community of Israel through the baptism of John and through circumcision and related customs as well, and practice loyalty to God through the law of Moses, at least the parts which established Jewish identity. Once he was taught better, there is no record that Apollos returned to the Ephesian synagogue to preach again. Perhaps he feared that his teaching would be ineffective since he had just previously been preaching a different message and such a sudden change might confuse people. So instead, he traveled to Corinth to work with the Christians and among the unbelieving Jews who lived there. And as we've learned from the previous incident with the disciples mentioned in 19.1-7, the congregation in Ephesus was somewhat nebulous in its conviction and understanding at this point anyway. So Paul came into a setting where there were some friends and several open minds, and for three months, Luke says, he spoke boldly concerning the things of the kingdom of God. The adjective boldly simply means that Paul was very direct and plain about what he was saying. The things of the kingdom of God was Luke's phrase back in Acts 1-3 to summarize the very message of the gospel that Jesus commanded to be carried throughout the world. We see again that it is not merely forgiveness of sins and a blissful afterlife, but the present and progressive reign of Christ that is the apostolic gospel. Now that itself would not have surprised the Jews. There's very little said about life after death in the Old Testament. What the Jews were longing for was not the hope of heaven and deliverance from hell, although they may well have expected these things to be the final outcome of history. It was particularly the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, the return of David's seed to make them a nation again and bring them back to a place where they could fulfill their mission for God and enjoy the blessings of the covenant, which in reality their people had never actually experienced since Moses described it to them on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy 28, 1-14. You see, the blessings of the covenant were only promised to the the faithful. But Israel had never actually been faithful. So the hope of Israel was that one day a ruler, the Messiah, would come and make them what they were supposed to be and deliver them from the curses of the covenant disobedience uh, described in Deuteronomy 28 verses 15 through 68, which they had experienced and in fact were continuing to experience to that day. The Sadducees and perhaps the Herodians were the minority among the Jews that rejected the Messianic hope and looked instead for the restoration of Israel through the temple and the priesthood or through some other earthly political maneuver. But the majority of Jews, those who identified as Pharisees, 
zealots and Essenes, and others who avoided the sectarian divisions of the day, had a well-established confidence that this was going to happen and it would be God's solution to the problems they faced. However, among the various sects, there were radically differing conceptions of what the Messiah would look like. This is helpful to know because the Bible presents the message of the apostles as something offensive to the Jews. Luke says that Paul had to spend his time reasoning and persuading his audience. These terms carry the connotation of debate and argument rather than mere explanation. It might be strange to some that the Jews would be offended to hear that what they had all hoped and prayed for throughout many years was finally coming to pass. Yet the reason for the offense was that the Messiah which the apostles preached was significantly different from the Messiah most of the Jews had hoped for. What exactly those differences were is good for us to understand because it is possible for Christians to reach some of the same faulty interpretations that the Second Temple Jews reached, and if so, it would have as severe an impact on our ability to follow Jesus as it did for them. In fact, it might cause us to create in our imagination a Jesus who is not the real Jesus of history and Scripture. First, it is important to note that the Messianic hope in the first century was shaped by the experience of Israel in the previous 700 years. In particular, the schism of the kingdom into Israel and Judah, the utter annihilation of the northern kingdom through their assimilation into the nations, and the captivity of Judah in Babylon and Persia. After these events, all that was left of Israel was the Jews, and most of the Jews did not return to the promised land. By the time of Jesus, about half a million Jews lived in Israel, while nearly three million lived dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. Those who did return were never actually restored to what they had been before, even though what they had been before was not all they were supposed to be. It is true that during the Hasmonean period, there were so-called Jewish kings and there was a restored temple, but this was not the Davidic monarchy with which God had made his covenant, and the temple services were very unlike what the law described. For example, they did not have the Ark of the Covenant in their possession. It had been permanently lost after the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. And the daily life of the Jewish people demonstrated that they were still under a curse from God rather than living in the covenant blessings. Instead of being a light to the nations, the post-exilic Jews were a laughingstock and a whipping boy to them, and a strong animosity developed between the Jews and Gentiles. So the Messianic hope at this time was that through a Davidic king, all Israel would be gathered together in the land that God had given to them, and they would receive the fullness of what God had promised through Abraham, Moses, and David. In this event, the Gentiles would be humiliated, and those who had opposed Israel would be destroyed. There are several graphic passages from Jewish writings popular at this time which stress these ideas. Sirach 36, verses 1 through 22, contains a prayer that was commonly prayed on behalf of Israel. Verses 10 through 16 say, Hasten the day, and remember the appointed time, and let people recount your mighty deeds. Let survivors be consumed in the fiery wrath, and may those who harm your people meet destruction. 
Crush the heads of hostile rulers who say, There is no one but ourselves. Gather all the tribes of Jacob and give them their inheritance as at the beginning. Similarly, 2 Baruch chapter 72, verses 2 through 6 says, After the signs have come, of which you were told before, when the nations have become turbulent and the time of my Messiah is come, he shall both summon all the nations, and some of them he shall spare, and some of them he shall slay. These things therefore shall come upon the nations which are to be spared by him. Every nation which knows not Israel and has not trodden down the seed of Jacob shall indeed be spared. And this is because some out of every nation shall be subjected to your people. But all those who have ruled over you or have known you shall be given up to the sword. From these understandings, the Pharisees emphasized that faithfulness to God was accomplished through conformity to Jewish identity markers, circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, kosher food, and exclusive fellowship at meals. The zealots emphasized that loyalty to God was accomplished through unrelenting, intense opposition to those oppressive nations that God was planning to destroy anyway. The Essenes and other fringe sects like them suggested that the best thing to do was to just live in communal isolation and await the radical work of God. Even their understanding of what Messiah would be like when he came differed. Some expected a priest, others a prophet, others a warrior king, others multiple messiahs coming to fulfill every needed role for Israel. But no one was anticipating a poor carpenter from Nazareth who taught Israel to love their enemies and that God was going to welcome the nations into his kingdom without circumcision or Sabbath-keeping or kosher food and that God would punish Jews with destruction if they were not merciful and loving to the poor and to sinners. But this is precisely what Paul preached when he came into the synagogues. I stress that this is so important to understand because in modern Christianity, there are theories about God's promises to Abraham, Moses, and David that are much more like the interpretations of the post-exilic rabbis than the apostles. This is especially true in the system known as dispensational premillennialism, with its extreme emphasis on ethnic Israel and the idea that their earthly exaltation and prosperity is integral to God's eternal plan. The misunderstandings of the Jews in the apostolic age caused them to reject the gospel in favor of the Judaizer teaching, or even to reject that Jesus was truly the Messiah. Yet here, in this synagogue, we have a glimmer of hope. Though Paul spoke to them plainly, and he had to argue through their resistance to his presentation of God's real plan and purpose, he was able to continue the work among them for three months. We might expect that the whole synagogue will be converted. And yet it was not to be. Verse 9, But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples. The New American Standard Version says these men were becoming hardened, implying a gradual and progressive change in them over a period of time. Paul's reasoning and persuading had the capacity to bring these people to the truth. We know that it is so because it worked on many other occasions. 
But the growth of the kingdom involves both the work of God and its reception by mankind. In the account of Moses' dealings with Pharaoh, it has been observed that the Bible says both that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 9, 12, 10, 1, 10, 20, 10, 27, and 11:10, but also that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, Exodus 8, 15, and 32, and 9, 34. But the Bible teaches that God's hardening always follows the man's hardening of himself. It is a response to and judgment of human rejection of him, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 11. These people closed off their minds to what Paul was saying because they found it offensive to their own preconceptions, and this led them to commit two evils. First, they did not believe. That is, in the language of Luke, they would not give their allegiance to Jesus as king. And second, they instead spoke evil of the way. And this means more than simply dismissing Paul and the Jesus he preached. These people tried to convince the multitude, evidently the rest of the Jews and God-fearers to whom Paul had been speaking, that Paul and the message of the kingdom were dangerous so that they would either be angry or afraid and no longer consider what Paul was saying. Sometimes when one is confronted with a new idea, his first response is either to fight or to run away. There are indeed some evil things that are worth fighting or fleeing. But before we respond like that, it would be good to listen and think. Often evil speech is designed to prevent thoughtful analysis and to demonize and stir up suspicion about something so that others will be inclined to ignore it. Beware of these sorts of tactics. While Luke gives a very abbreviated account of what transpired here, and we might even feel shocked that Paul would abandon such a long effort at what seems to be the first sign of criticism, we should assume that Paul saw a real danger to the work of Christ in what these men were doing. In fact, according to Acts 21, 27-29, these very critics seem to become continual enemies to Paul who were actually responsible for his being arrested in Jerusalem. So Paul left the synagogue and he took the disciples, that is, the congregation of Christians, with him. But their work did not end. It merely shifted to reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. We know nothing about the school of Tyrannus, but most commentators assume it was a lecture hall called after the nickname of a particularly demanding teacher. Tyrannus is literally the tyrant. The Western text states that Paul taught here from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., which actually harmonizes with what we know about the hours of function for Greco-Roman schools at that point in time. 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. would be the off hours when the hall was vacant and accessible. How Paul acquired this hall, we cannot say for certain, but it allowed him to teach every day instead of simply each Sabbath, and even when the synagogue was having its uh, meetings, which perhaps were now considered rival meetings to Paul's. He could teach here without hostility that had disrupted his ministry elsewhere. Verse 10, And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. 
If the duration of Paul's teaching in the synagogue was impressive, this is all the more so. And not only the duration, but this time, the impact. All who dwelt in Asia is a hyperbole. But the meaning is that every district and significant community there was reached with gospel preaching. And not only every district, but all peoples, both Jews and Greeks. How did this happen? Answering that question requires some conjecture, but it may be informed by what Paul says in some of his writings. While it's possible that much of this work was done from Ephesus, even in the lecture hall, taking advantage of the fact that Ephesus was both a major trade center and a draw for religious people coming to visit the temple of Artemis, it is also possible that Ephesus became an evangelistic hub where Paul taught dedicated young disciples and sent them out to places like Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis, Pergamum, and Smyrna, and Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. We know that there were churches in all of these places, and we know that evangelists who worked with them and were seemingly trained by Paul uh, labored with them and perhaps even established them were men like Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Epaphras, and Archippus, mentioned in Colossians and Philemon and 2 Timothy. Maybe these men were prepared for their ministry by what Paul did here in this place. The servants of God labor long in a certain field, and sometimes certain ground is hardened and produces little or no fruit. But a slight adjustment results in a bountiful harvest. All this simply shows that God's work must be carried out with patience, wisdom, and relentless devotion. But it is sure to succeed. The kingdom is spreading. From all the dark places of earth, heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.